The scripture for the sermon today is Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. It's on page 8 of the Black Bibles. Before I read, I'll just say a quick prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, it still speaks to us today. Please be with Pastor Mike as he um, opens your word for us today, and just that you would be with each and every one of us. Open our minds and hearts that we may receive um, your word and listen to it. In your name I pray, amen. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. In case anybody would like a copy of the sermon manuscript, Sylvia has them. She'll be walking around and you can get her attention as she passes by you. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, human beings, us, we seem wired to aspire towards some accomplishment, to strive towards some goal. We're all about endeavor something we think about at graduation time, and it's something we're going to think about today. I want to follow the same pattern that I followed in the last two sermons. What is human endeavor supposed to be? What went wrong with human endeavor? And what does renewed human endeavor look like when Christ makes it new? We really get the answer to the first two questions before we're even at the end of three chapters of the Bible. The first two chapters of the Bible are the story of creation. And the high point of that story is when God creates humanity in his own image. God tells us to be fruitful and multiply, and God gives us dominion over the other creatures. And if you read that right, that really means caring for God's creation and respecting God's dominion over everything, including over us. That respect for God's dominion should govern and define human endeavor. 
But we don't really want to submit to God's dominion. We hear the serpent's voice saying, you will be as gods. And we like the sound of that. Chapter 3 is the story of our human rebellion and disobedience and of God's first judgment upon us, the judgment of death. There's mercy in all of God's judgments in the Bible. Human beings become mortal when they sin, but they don't die immediately. They can still be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Unfortunately, they, perhaps I should say we, happen to fill the earth with wickedness. It says in Genesis 6, every thought of every heart was only evil all the time, and God was grieved that he created us. And God sends a flood to wipe humanity from the face of the earth. But once again, there is mercy in the judgment. God spares Noah and his family. God limits the lifespan of Noah and his descendants after that. But once again, the human race flourishes and fills the earth. And that brings us to this morning's passage. Human technology advances to the point where we can build tall buildings out of materials made by human ingenuity. And we think, why not build one all the way up to the heavens? Who needs God? It sounds like the old human ambition coming back from the garden to haunt us. You will be like God. Human endeavor is bent in that direction, the direction of wanting to be our own gods. We should be building altars to God, but we want to build tall monuments to ourselves. We'll read this story wrong if we imagine that the God who can send a flood upon the earth is actually threatened by the architectural ambition of the human race. One strong earthquake would probably take care of this tower, and God can probably manage an earthquake. The real danger here is to us. God knows that human beings don't really have the resources to live apart from our Creator. And if we fall into the trap, into the mindset, the hardened mindset of thinking that nothing is impossible for us, that, that we don't need God, then we're cutting ourselves off from the grace God intends for us and that we need. We weren't made to live apart from God. We can't. So God finds a way to limit our human ability, to frustrate our human ambition in order to protect us from our disoriented human endeavor. God does this by confusing human speech so that we don't all speak the same language that seriously limits our ability to work together and to collaborate in our human endeavor. And except for death itself, this linguistic alienation from other human beings is perhaps the most tangible and universal sign of the, God, of the judgment God sends on rebellious humanity and of our need to be saved from sin and its consequences. It's kind of a built-in futility in the creation and in the human and human culture. Well, the resurrection of Jesus is the antidote or the anti-type to the judgment of death. God raised Jesus up as the firstborn of a people redeemed 
for eternal life. And the coming of the Holy Spirit, along with the miraculous ability to speak the languages of other people, is the antidote or antitype to that other judgment, the confusion of human speech. With the resurrection of Jesus, there is a new hope, the hope of immortality. And with the gift of the Holy Spirit and the unconfusion of human speech, inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, there is a hope that human ambition and human endeavor can be redeemed so that we can become God's servants instead of God's rivals, so that we can submit our wills to God's will instead of rebelling against God's will. Repentance is the first act of submission to God and to the renewal of these things that God is doing. And the sign of that submission is baptism. That's what's missing in this service. <laughs> That's what Peter preached on Pentecost, repentance. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance, this, this voluntary submission to God's dominion, doesn't just change people's belief. If you read the story, you'll see very clearly that it changes their lives. The gospel, when it comes, produces tangible results. What did we hear this morning? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And it goes even deeper than those four things listed in Acts 2.42. These believers' devotion to Christ and to one another had much more profound results. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. That's the story we heard this morning. My hunch, maybe it's self-interest and a lack of faith, I don't know, but my hunch is that this species of Christian communalism that we see in the first church is as miraculous and as rare a gift as the gift of tongues, the way it was expressed on Pentecost. I think these passages are descriptive, not prescriptive. They tell us what happened, not necessarily what we ought to do, but they should at the very least inspire our imagination and open us up to new spirit-empowered possibilities, don't you think? So I'd like to explore the renewed expression of human endeavor that this passage presents to us. Last week I said I would mention three things, justice, peace, and truth. I think the trajectory we're exploring this morning, looking at Pentecost as a reversal of Babel and of the misguided ambition that we see highlighted in the early chapters of Genesis, points in the direction of justice, peace, and truth. But I want to start with peace. In the Bible, peace, shalom, is very tangible and very positive. It's not just the absence of conflict or the absence of emotional turmoil. It's the presence of real embodied goodness. Shalom means that everyone's basic needs are met, needs of body and mind and soul. Where there is shalom, everyone's needs are met, but no one's needs are met at the expense of anyone else. It's really a powerful form 
and a true form of loving your neighbor as yourself. Pursuing shalom usually requires a kind of radical generosity that is the image of God's own radical generosity. You can clearly see that this was a high value in the early church. However, since the human race is still fallen especially, there can be a downside to generosity. And this is where justice comes in. Justice has two concerns. First, that everyone should get what they need. Second, that no one should take advantage of anyone else. You could express the first one in terms of rights. Everyone should get what they are, I hesitate to use the word entitled to, but everyone should get what they ought to have because they're God's creatures within the providence of God's abundant creation. Justice should be concerned about that. You could express the second one in terms of responsibilities. No one should take advantage of anyone else or get more than they deserve by exploiting God's creation or God's creatures. The New Testament warns us against two ways that people take advantage of each other. One is when the rich and powerful exploit the poor and the helpless, and there are plenty of parables and prophetic words about that. But the other way is when lazy or greedy people exploit hardworking or generous people. That happens too. In Acts 4, there's an echo of this morning's passage. It says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What a radical and beautiful sharing of resources into a common pool. But in the next chapter, there was a man named Ananias who sold his home, but he kept back part of the money himself. He wanted the glory, but he didn't want that all-in investment. He didn't put all of his money into the common pool. That was a justice concern. God himself judged Ananias by taking his life. In Acts 6, some of the Greek-speaking believers complained that they were not getting fair treatment from the Hebrew-speaking believers in the daily distribution of food to those in need. They had a system. It wasn't to the, to the minds of some working right. It wasn't fair. That was also a justice concern. The church responded by appointing deacons to oversee the distribution of food. The office of deacon was born out of a concern for justice as well as a concern for shalom. Any redeemed sense or expression of human endeavor should aim at both of those things, justice and shalom, without sacrificing either one. It's not something we should expect the world to get right. The Democratic Party's not going to get it right. The Republican Party's not going to get it right. The Prime Minister of Canada, the Queen of England, or the future heir to the throne of England is not going to get it right. But it's something that we should aim at getting right in the church. And if we did get that right, I think that would be compelling. And maybe the world would come to us and ask, how do you guys do that? And that points toward another extremely important way 
of exercising renewed human endeavor, telling the truth to our neighbors, especially the truth about Jesus, not in words only, but also not in deeds only. When he ascended to heaven, Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. And when the Holy Spirit came, it was for that witness that the church was empowered. That was the early church's most passionate engagement with the world. And it was Peter's earnest message on the day the Spirit came and ever after. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It's a common idea in our culture that everyone has their own truth. Mine works for me, and I hope yours works for you. It's not a surprise if the world believes that. It's a convenient thing to believe. It's a disaster if the people of God believe that. For one thing, it's an insult to the God who has spoken to us by His Word and by His Son. It's just another form of being your own God. I'm the one who decides what is true. And the real danger, once again, is not to God, but to anyone who thinks they're really qualified to decide what the truth is for themselves. That's human ambition gone wrong. And if we, the church, the church, followers of Jesus, believe that everyone has their own truth, then we'll fail at one of the most important tasks that Jesus has entrusted to his church, calling people out of their darkness and death into God's light and life. Jesus asked this haunting rhetorical question, what will it profit anyone to gain the world but lose their soul? And in Jesus' name I ask, what good will we do others if we meet their worldly needs but don't lead them in the paths of eternal life. It's not either or, of course. It has to be both and. A church needs deacons to lead primarily in meeting needs and elders to lead primarily in teaching God's truth. And all of us have to devote ourselves to those things together. The command of Jesus is clear. You shall be my witnesses. That's the thing uppermost on his mind as he leaves the world and entrusts his mission to us. Any redeemed sense or expression of human endeavor needs to make a lot of room for telling the truth to our neighbors. Their lives depend on it, and really ours do too. It's one of the things that we were redeemed for. The apostles understood that. On that day, 3,000 people heard the message and believed it. And from that epicenter of the Holy Spirit's coming in Jerusalem, the seismic waves, waves of the gospel radiated out into all the earth. And it simply wouldn't honor the day of Pentecost if we didn't focus on that. So may our speaking, may our life together, may our thinking, being, and doing be shaped by that passion and be part of that mission that the Holy Spirit empowered on the first Pentecost, and that he still empowers today. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we are still in awe. We get goosebumps when we think of that first Pentecost. Not just the miracle of empowered 
and redeemed and restored communication. But the miracle of people coming to you for salvation, coming to you to receive mercy, coming to you as the one who can end our futility and restore us and make us part of a work that will not end when our lives end and when this world ends, but that will go on forever. We praise you and thank you for the work you are doing, building a temple made of living stones that will be your everlasting dwelling, O God. And we pray that you will empower our work in our place and our time of building your kingdom, calling men and women and children out of darkness into your marvelous light. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.